Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. Uh, Especially when you find stuff in the Bible that lines up, and we talk about this with scientific facts, like uh, things outside of these four walls, that science says, hey, this is how this works, Uh, this is how this exists. And we said before, there's nothing in the Bible that contradicts contradicts any scientific data or fact. Uh, There are some scientific theories, but there's nothing in the Bible that contradicts any scientific fact, and there's no scientific facts that aren't supported uh, by what's in the Bible. But also, when you look at um, archaeological facts and archaeological evidence, when they go digging up and find stuff, anyone here, they found like a ship I forget where, uh, from the 1800s. There's two things I heard they found this week. One ship from the 1800s, somewhere around Civil War times. uh, Because of all the flooding and stuff, and as the waters receded, I guess it washed it up. Uh, And another one was they found um, a bottle with a note in it. Anyone ever do that, put a note in a bottle and throw it out in the ocean? Nobody's ever done that? Seriously? Wow, have you ever written one and then just flushed it down the toilet? Same thing without the bottle. Don't put a bottle down the toilet. But uh, they found a note in the bottle. It wasn't anything like, you know, crazy. It was just, I just want to see where this ends up. But the bottle, they said, and the note, they think, are from like mid to late 1800s as well, which is kind of cool. So when the Bible lines up with scientific facts and archaeological facts, and when it lines up with historical facts, things that we know occurred in history, Uh, And the Bible says, yeah, these things occurred as well, and they line up. Uh, That's great. So today we're going to look at, uh, as we continue walking through Genesis, some of the stuff that lines up historically and somewhat archaeologically, 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 if that's not the word, forgive me, uh, this morning. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 11. Uh, If you don't have one, there's one under the seat to the left, to the right, in front of you, uh, or on your phone or tablet. Uh, But I'm going to jump back to something we covered last week, dig into that a little bit more, because it's going to lay the groundwork uh, for our walk through Genesis chapter 11. And I'm going to jump back to actually Genesis chapter 10. And in Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, again, this is Moses kind of documenting all this historically for us as revealed to him by God. And he says that Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man, meaning Nimrod. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, from a timeline perspective, and we'll go more into this next week, and I showed you guys the timeline. We're from Genesis 5. Uh, We're looking at 1,656 years of human history before the flood occurred. You can actually very accurately count 1,656 years uh, until the flood occurred. And then Moses gives very detailed timeline of how long the flood lasted. The flood lasted. The rains came down for 40 days. Uh, After 150 days, they started to recede. Uh, But they were on the ark for a year, I think a year and two months and 10 days, somewhere around there, if I'm recalling correctly. So very specific again. So 1,656 years till the flood starts of human history. This isn't talking about age of the earth, because God doesn't tell us that. Just talking, we're just looking at human history. And then a year on the flood. Uh, and then um, you get to this point, and we're going to talk about this. This is probably within the first 
100 years after that, and I'll explain why in a minute. Uh, but one of the reasons we have that accurate timeline is because God tells us, you know, Adam lived 130 years, right? So 130 years passed. And then he had a son named Seth. And then it says Seth lived however many years, and then he had a son. So you can add that up, and it's very specific. But in this particular instance, it says Cush fathered Nimrod. And when it uses terminology like that, you can't make a case for, and I know some people try to do, that Cush was the direct father of Nimrod. It's more likely, uh, and you can't see it here, but in the verse right before that, it lists the sons of Ham uh, as, as Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, and then later on it lists the sons of Cush, and Nimrod isn't listed as a direct son of Cush. So some people think when it uses that terminology, it's talking about he was a descendant, and it's likely true if you look at the time that we're talking about. So Cush fathered Nimrod, first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, when it talks about him being mighty, it talks about him both in a good way and possibly, not definitely, uh, a bad way because the word mighty means mighty in strength and notoriety, kind of like we have the word famous for someone who's popular and famous, but we also have the word infamous for someone who's famous but not in a good way, like... Um, no bad people are coming to mind. But think of someone who's popular. Hitler, infamous, not famous, but infamous. Well-known, everyone knows, you know, Hitler, world dominator, that kind of thing. Uh, but not famous in a popular way. Like, if he were alive today, no one would want to do selfies with Hitler. Uh, I don't think too many people are naming their kids like Adolf Hitler. So, you know what I mean? He's well-known, but not in a popular way. So that's also what that word means. And there are a lot of people outside of, you know, the biblical Judeo-Christian concept, you say, well, Nimrod never existed. We have no documentation. We haven't found his name anywhere. And it's not like they were taking selfies back then. But there are other extra-biblical, meaning outside of the Bible, uh, references to him um, in what's called the, uh, the Jewish Talmud, which is the um, documentation of all the Jewish oral traditions and uh, commentaries about the Jewish Bible in the Old Testament. Uh, it also talks about Nimrod in a book or document called the Kitab al-Magal, and in another one called the Syriac Cave of Treasures. They talk about Nimrod uh, in a way that is not specifically talked about in the Bible, but in a way that says, yeah, this is probably the same guy, the location they give, the things that he did. So there are other extra-biblical references that talk about, yeah, uh, this person named Nimrod uh, definitely did exist. Now, his kingdom uh, that we're going to read about um, is, is more than just a physical kingdom, right? Uh, and here's why. Going back to Genesis chapter 10 and verse 10, it says this. And again, continuing talking about Nimrod, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, which we know today as, as modern-day Babylon. Well, not modern-day, but Babylon. Eric, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. A lot of these names we're probably never going to remember. A lot of these names don't show up in the Bible again, but many of them do. For example, um, where it says the land of Shinar, Shinar is, in its original meaning, similar uh, to what we would call Mesopotamia. And I don't know if you can see this on the map. 
Mesopotamia and Shinar both in a general reference mean the land between two rivers. The two rivers being the Tigris, which we know existed, and the Euphrates. Uh, and when it says that he went first in Babylon, Babylon down where the southern arrow is pointing at the bottom of the screen, uh, that's Babylon, which is in the area of modern day Baghdad, Baghdad today. Uh, but then he left there, and we're going to read about that, and he went and built Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of where it says Assur. That's the nation of Assyria, which became historically and biblically recorded as the first world-dominating power. Uh, world-dominating, not the entire world, but world-dominating most of the known world at that time. Assyria was then overtaken uh, by Babylon. So we're going to read a little bit more about Nimrod, because I don't mean this to be a history lesson, uh, but we're going to read a little bit more about Nimrod and his kingdom, because it's important. The kingdom that he built still stands today, not in a national nation, but in the foundations that he built that nation upon. So uh, again, if you have your Bible, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 11. Uh, Genesis, again, first book in the Bible, so turn to Genesis chapter 11, uh, and we're going to walk through just a couple of verses in Genesis chapter 11. And uh, for those of you who have been following as we've been doing Genesis, granted it took us weeks to get here, but the first, uh, from probably the rest of chapter 11, the first two chapters, or the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover about 2,000 years, and we're, we're going to touch on that more um, of human history. Kind of the rest of the Old Testament covers another 2,000 years. So we're only going to go walk through Genesis, uh, but this is why it has taken us so long, it seems like, to get through there. The rest of it just covers Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Joseph, and that kind of thing. But Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And, and here's just to point out something really quick. When it says the whole world, we don't know exactly how many people there were. Uh, most theologians guesstimate that, again, this was within the first 100 years or so after they left the ark. And the reason they guesstimate that is because, like we talked about last week when we read through, uh, when the land ended up being divided, what uh, scientists call, uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not Pegasus, Pangenea, Pange the, the one continent that existed before it broke up, uh, that probably occurred, and we're going to talk more about that next week, uh, within the first 100 years. And I'll show you the timeline again, uh, how we got there. Uh, so this takes place before that. So all of this takes place within the first 100 years. Now, if you do the math, and the math is guessing math, eight people came off the ark, right? Noah and his wife. Uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. We're not told that Noah had any other children after them. So we know he didn't contribute to the human population any more than uh, his three sons and their three wives, even though he didn't father them, their three wives. But if you do the math within 100 years, because whether we like it or not or believe it or not, the Bible says that they live for you know, four or 500 years, and we're going to see that timeline decrease over time due to climate and all that stuff. But um, you can do the math, and within 100 years, there can only be so many people. And I mean this in a not bad way, but then again, there wasn't a lot to do. There were only people around, so they probably did turn out a lot of babies. I don't know any other way to say that. There, there wasn't like TV. There weren't movies. There was no, you know, cable, 
no cell phones. So it's like, what do you want to do? I don't know, what do you want to do? And I mean, I'm, okay, anyway, but if they were turning out a lot of babies, even in 100 years, and those babies are, are, are growing up, and then, you know, same way with Adam and Eve, they're marrying each other because they're the only people around. You only get within a 100-year time frame to so many. And some speculate on the large end that there were like maybe 10, 15, 20,000 people. I can't get there myself. I'm thinking maybe a few hundred to a few thousand at most. I could be wrong. We have no idea because the Bible doesn't tell us, right? But we do know that it was enough people uh, to where they were all in unison. They were unified. They weren't divided. Uh, there may have been bickering going on, but they were all in unison because it says now the whole world, however many people that were, whether it was 300, 500, 1,000, 3,000, 10,000, uh, they were all together. They all had a common speech. And in verse 2, as men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and settled there. So again, this whole group of people uh, moves towards the plain of Sinar, what we looked at on the map, which is uh, you know, that area between the two rivers, uh, and starting in Babylon. And at verse 3, it says, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And when we looked at this when Noah was building the ark, we said that that word tar is a word it's called, uh, bitumen, and I might not be pronouncing it right. But uh, also uh, Nelson Rockefeller, or whatever the original Rockefeller was, when he was reading through these verses, uh, surmised that, hey, in order for them to do that, there had to be some oil-based substance that allowed them to do that. And that's what initially sent him to the Middle East to start his oil fortune. Verse 4, then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And I have said before, this is to me one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. And some people have said, well, you can't say that uh, because, it's, yeah, it's saying that, hey, God looked at humanity and said, if we could put all of our differences aside, our racial, our class, our political differences aside, and work together, nothing would be impossible for us. Now, I'm speaking in the context of not working against God, but working for God. God was saying, hey, they're working against me, and they're all unified. But from a powerful perspective, God acknowledged that humanity has the capability to do much more than what we're accomplishing, and the only thing that's stopping us is us, because we see differences, because we're not working together, we're not willing to put our differences aside. Uh, but then verse 6, or excuse me, verse 8, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. Uh, and again, uh, um, this is where we just read where they left, Nimrod left um, Babylon and went to Nineveh because this is the time when they were scattered. And they didn't finish the city that they were working on. In verse 9, this is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And again, this is 
I wasn't there, but this is what most theologians believe. This was likely before the land was broken up and divided, when you still have the one big, you know, all continent, one whole thing together. So it was easy for people to scatter all over that land. And then when that land breaks up, um, that's all those people and the animals that they took with them end up in different places. Uh, but here's the thing that I want to focus on this morning, uh, because Nimrod built that kingdom. He was the kind of facilitator of, of grouping those people together. And he built it on three things um, that are still kind of work as a kingdom, so to speak, today. And, and consequently, Nimrod, uh, if you look throughout the Bible and through other cultures, uh, a lot of people will tie back a lot of false gods to Nimrod. And we're going to read about one. Her name is Asherah, and she was the goddess of fertility, not just in Jewish culture, but in a lot of other cultures. And her husband was believed to be a descendant of Nimrod, but they believed him to be the sun god. Right? Uh, but the first thing that he built, and, and I bring this up because the first thing that the kingdom was built upon was starry adoration. And I heard another pastor put it this way, so I'm just putting this way. Uh, starry adoration. They began to look at and worship the stars. And uh, jumping back to uh, verse 4, and this is the complete Jewish Bible version because this is the way the Jewish mindset would have read and understood what Moses wrote. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that has its top reaching up into heaven so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the whole earth. And uh, the starry adoration uh, where it says up into heaven, uh, it's not just to look at the stars. Their, their concept was to build it as high as the stars to be among the stars. And that word stars is also translated as uh, not just the stars, but the universe, uh, the, the, the heavenly bodies, the celestial things. Because they began to worship those things, worship what they could see rather than the God that they couldn't see. And then God later on in Exodus, when he's giving, you know, he brings the people of Israel out, he's, one of the things that he commands them is don't do that. He says in verse Chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. One of the first things that God tells the nation of Israel once he brings them out of Egypt, where Egypt was big on worshiping sun gods and moon gods and star gods, he says, hey, don't create images of created things to worship them. Now, if you get past Exodus into the book of Judges, you'll see one of the first things that Israel started doing as a nation was worshiping created beings, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then once they get a king, uh, King David really didn't have that problem, but every king after him wrestled with it. Some of them encouraged the people to do it, and some of them had to fight against the people doing it. Uh, and here's just one example in 2 Kings, and this is towards the end uh, of the existence of the nation of Israel. Verse, uh, chapter 21, uh, verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, which is weird, but I would think that'd be awesome. That's like Richie Rich. Anyone remember Richie Rich? It might be, okay, yeah, that'd be like Richie Rich on steroids. Not only are you wealthy, but you're in charge. Anyway, he was 12 years old when he became king, but here's what happens when you put a 12-year-old in charge. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord 
following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And those nations that God drove out were the ones we talked about last week, the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Specifically, the descendants of Ham within the land of Canaan, so much idol worship. But he goes on and he says this, he, meaning Manasseh, rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. And here's the thing. His father Hezekiah said, no, we can't do this. This isn't right. We're supposed to worship God. Get rid of all the high places. The high places uh, would be the equivalent of, just like you have all throughout all these communities around the United States, you have churches everywhere. Every corner, coffee house, schools, churches. Instead of churches, what they had were high places. So instead of like, you know, a church, there were places to worship the sun, places to worship the moon. Uh, there were places where altars were built where you would bring your sacrifices not to worship God, but to worship created things. And one of them was an altar to Baal, also believed to be another version of Nimrod, and made an Asherah pole. And everyone in here is over 21. Those were organ-shaped buildings. I don't know any other way to say that, and I don't want to go further because I just don't. But uh, uh, where they would go and they would worship, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he, meaning Manasseh, bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. Now, they began, and throughout the nation of Israel, to worship the stars, the sun, the moon, the god, the rain gods, the thunder god, which is how you end up with the Norse gods and where you, how you end up with cool movies like Thor. Well, Thor 3, 1 and 2 weren't that great, but all that kind of stuff because they began to worship all of these things. And you see that throughout not just their history, uh, but throughout the history of a lot of the other nations uh, that surrounded them. So uh, in addition, though, to starry adoration, uh, they had self-exaltation. They thought that they were better than anyone else. And, and here's a key point. They didn't just want to worship the stars as gods, small g, because we know they're not God. They wanted to worship them and be like God, big G. They wanted to be godlike. Uh, and in Genesis, going back to chapter 4, or excuse me, 11, uh, 11 chapter 4, it says, they said... Let's build ourselves a city with a tower that's have its top reaching to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. That was their goal. Rather than make God's name known, they wanted to make their name known. This is what's called humanism. And there is nothing wrong with people thinking that, hey, I, I want to be, I want to make my name known as a pastor. I want to make my name known as a, you know, a teacher or as a lawyer, as a doctor, as a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker. But here's the problem. When you say, I want to make my name known, you've got to do one of two things. You've either got to bring your name up, so you've got to pump yourself up so that people know you, and you're not going to pump up anybody else around you because you only want to bring your name up, or you've got to put someone else's name down so that you stand out. And that's not the way that God operates. But when we operate that way, here's what happens. Every ism that you can think of works off of this concept. Racism 
works off of one race of people saying, hey, I'm either going to exalt just our name, forget everybody else, we're the only ones that matter, or I'm going to put everyone else's name down so that we stand out because we are better. If you think about classism, you know, the same way, either rich or poor, saying, hey, uh, we're the only ones that matter, so don't do anything for anyone else, or we're going to put down the other people because they don't matter. You've either got to exalt yourself up, pump your name up, or you've got to put someone else's name down. And the same is true within churches. And again, there's nothing wrong with denominations. But when denominations say, hey, we are better than you are, so we're not going to interact with you. We're just going to pump up the name of our denomination Instead of pumping up the name of God or Jesus Christ, you create this separation. Or when you say, which happens, I'm going to go put down this denomination so that mine stands out or across churches. I'm going to put down that church because I want you, Larry and Sharon, to come to my church. And you say, well, we're going to this church. And oh, don't go to them. They suck. That's exalting one name by putting down another. That's the kind of thing that God is not interested in. And, and when Paul uh, is talking to um, the church in Rome, uh, what he writes to them, and, it, and this is a church of multi uh, people of all classes and races, uh, people of all financial statuses, he says, for by the grace, the unmerited favor of God given to me, I warn everyone among you not to estimate and think of himself more highly than he ought. In other words, he's saying, you're not that much. Don't think that you're better than anyone else. Don't think you're worth more than anyone else because in the eyes of God, God looks at each of us and says, hey, not only am I, Floyd, worth dying for, you, Gary, are worth dying for, you, Heather, are worth dying for, you, Larry, are worth dying for. And then if we, if I put down, you know, um, Chuck so I can exalt myself, God's saying, you know, I died for him too. He matters to me. And what Paul says is if you really want to see your worth, rate it in accordance with the degree of faith that was given to you by God. Not by, hey, Floyd, you think you're a better preacher. Not by, hey, you think you're a better guitar player. Not by, you think you're a better butcher, baker, candlestick maker. Because then we're exalting ourselves to put someone else down. He says, look at what God thinks of you. And if I have to look at what God thinks of me, then I have to look at what God thinks of all of you as well. And this brings us to the last thing that they built their kingdom on, which is just straight up sinful disobedience. Them just saying, we don't want to do what God wants us to do. Because God told Adam and Eve, hey, go, I'm going to bless you. Go, you know, and multiply all over the earth. Create communities where people can love me, receive my love, and where you can love one another. And when that didn't work out, and the flood came, he tells Noah, and we talked about this last week, and his family, go out all over the earth. I'm going to bless you, and I want you to uh, multiply because that's all that God wants from us. And I talk to people every day, and you guys probably too, who say that, you know what, I don't want to be a Christian because there's too many rules and God wants too much of me. But in the communities that God wanted all over the world, he only wanted two things. Um, actually, let me read this first. Uh, again, where it says, um, where they were disobedient, uh, we're going to make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth. Although God said, go all over the earth. Uh, and they only wanted two things God expects from us. First and foremost, love him. 
just love God and be a recipient of his love. And when I talk to people who say, well, there are too many rules, I was like, which one of these rules is it that you can't follow? You know, loving God and being a recipient of his love, letting the creator of the universe love on you, because I find that very good for me. Or the second thing, and this is Jesus said, these are the only two commands. If you follow these, you're fulfilling everything written in this book. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes through a lot of detail to explain your neighbor isn't just the person that looks like you, thinks like you, likes the same music as you, likes the same movies as you. Your neighbor is the person who may not look like you, who may hate you, who may be a different race than you, a different gender than you, who may have different political thoughts than you. And he says those people, you're supposed to love them like you love yourself. Only two things you have to do. And you're fulfilling everything that God asks of us. And I'm like, which one of those do you have difficulty with? And the only other command that Jesus gives is he says, I have a new command. And it's for all those who want to follow me, who want to be a part of this thing called the church, who want to call themselves a Christian. And that is to simply love one another. So not only do I have to love the people who don't look like me, who may not think like me, who may think that, you know, my God is false, may think I'm in a cult, I'm still going to love them anyway, but I got to love the people who do think like me, who are Christ followers, even if they're in a different church or a different denomination, because we're all on the same team. And God says, this, these are the types of communities that I want to build, I want to see all over the earth. So Noah, you and your family, you guys go and spread out and build these communities. And they said, I don't think so. We just want to exalt ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth. And they decided that, hey, we don't want to make God's name known. We want to make our name known. And think about this for a minute. Imagine if we were the only people left on the planet, right? No one else while we're in here, wild zombie apocalypse thing. I watch way too much TV, sorry. Uh, Kind of wipes over the planet, and everyone, we leave here, everyone else is dead, right? So if we are the only people on the planet, just like they were, and we all say, we want to make our name known, the only people in the universe right now that we know of are us and who? God. Well, we assume they die off of starvation. But um, some of us would die off too. So it would probably end up with just this half of the room. <laughs> but so we're, we're left. The only people, people left for us to make, if we all agree, we want to make our name known, we're making it known to God. That's who we're making our name known to. So we either need to pump ourselves up above God, which is what they were doing, or reject God, which is what they were doing, uh, because they built the kingdom, their system, which exists today on being like God. I'd rather be like God. I'm going to exalt myself up. I know more than God. I don't believe he exists. I know much more than him, which we can't, but people say they do. We want to make a name like God's and reject and disobey God. This is the systems that still exist today. This is what most people who reject God say, well, I don't need God. I know more than him. I don't need God because I'm better than him. 
I just outright disobey and reject this God of the Bible, even though, like we talked about, there's so much scientific, historical, and archaeological evidence that says, yeah, he exists. And even though, like we talked about, all he wants from us is I want you to, you know, love me and let me love you. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then you guys that are church folk, love on one another. That's all he asks from us. And this is what the Apostle Paul, I'm going to close with this, writes to the church in Colossae, uh, in the book of Colossians. He says, see to it that no one carries you off as spoil or makes you yourselves captive by his so-called philosophy and intellectualism. And this is the Amplified Version. See that no one comes to you and says, hey, you know what, Uh, here's my way of thinking, here's my way of seeing the world, I know you trust the Bible, I know your God says this, but here's what I see, here's what I think, here's what I'm evaluating, and he says that that's kind of like utter nonsense to compare the thinking of a created being to the unlimited wisdom and knowledge of the creator. He says, that's just ridiculous. And then he goes on and he says this in verse 9, for in him, meaning in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of the deity, the Godhead, continues to dwell in bodily form. And this is especially for Christ followers because this is who he was writing to. Because at that time, Christ followers, there were people saying, well, you know, uh, I'm going to reason that this is what God meant. I'm going to reason that this is the way God should go. And based on what I see, and based, because I'm a very smart man, here's what I think you should do. Here's how I think you should follow Christ. Here's the religion or the denomination or whatever, the following that I want to start. And Paul was writing to them and saying, hey, but in you, if you're a Christ follower, the whole fullness of God resides in you. So why would you follow the thinking of a created being when you are filled with the fullness of the creator? And he goes on and he says this, and you are in him made full and having come to fullness of life in Christ, you are filled with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I've said this before. There, I mean, I, I, I've talked to some very smart people who make me think. They make me question, well, how could this happen? And, I, you know, I don't know. There's certain things like I'm still trying to wrap my head around, you know, God spinning the stars in the motion. All, I mean, you look at the universe. The earth is so small. We are just like a, not even a pebble, like a grain of sand. If you took all the sand on the planet and put it together, we're like one grain. And you compare it to the universe. But when we started this, we read that God said, I did this for you. And that's mind-boggling to me, and I can't understand it. And I have people that say, does that make sense, that this whole universe exists, and God did it for you? I'm like, yeah, that doesn't make sense, but I can't deny the spirit of the living God that's inside of me. And he reminds me every single day, I did this for you. And sometimes the spirit has to nudge me and say, Floyd, you shouldn't try to make your name great because the creator of the universe already knows your name. And he loved you and he created you and he died for you. What more could you want than the creator of the universe 
knowing your name on an intimate level, nothing compares to that. I'm going to ask you to bow your head as the band comes up. God, we pray that as we are facing issues in our life, um, maybe financial issues, uh, maybe, uh, you know, with the election coming up, people are, are, are wondering what's going to happen with our nation or with their community or with their job or with health insurance or with the, the, the tariffs and trade and steel and all of those things, especially here in a steel town. And maybe we're thinking that, you know, we have to put our faith in, in a person, in what they believe, in what they're saying, or what they say that they can do. Maybe we're looking to put our faith in someone who can get us a better job. Maybe we're looking to put our faith in someone who says, hey, I can, I can make you a better this or a better that. But God, my prayer right now is that we would all wholeheartedly and fully put our faith and our trust in you. And again, God, we understand there's nothing wrong with being good at what you have created us to be, whether it be singing, whether it be writing, whether it be building, whether it be repairing, whether it be whatever you have called us to do, whatever you have gifted us to do. There's nothing wrong with being good at that. But when we push past that level of being good at it to exalting our own name and bringing ourselves the glory, we move further away from you. And my prayer is that every single one of us would acknowledge your name, acknowledge you as Lord, acknowledge you as Savior, acknowledge you as provider, acknowledge you as the way maker. That we would bring all of our trials, all of our struggles, all of our issues, all of our questions to you. And I've said this before, I love the fact that when we have questions about your word, that we can, anytime we want, come down to the altar, just bow down on our faces and talk to the author to get answers. So God, we pray that as we close out our time this morning by lifting you up in song, that you would speak to our hearts those issues that we're wrestling with, those areas where we're not trusting, those things where we're trying to lean more towards what we can see than towards the God who can see all. That you would, as your word says, help us in our unbelief. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Amen. amen.